Hi, I'm Dr. George Tamaforis, and welcome to our special election series of Reasonable and Necessary. You'll hear what Australia's NDIS portfolio leaders have planned for our NDIS, and what a lineup: Linda Reynolds, Bill Shorten, and Jordan Steele-John. And in our final episode, we will bring together Australia's leading disability advocates to analyze everything that's been said. The questions I'm asking have come from you, source from advocacy organizations who have partnered with me to bring you this very important series. On today's show, we'll speak with Senator Jordan Stilton. Check it out. Hi Jordan, thanks for joining us. Oh, my absolute pleasure. Thank you for inviting me to be part of it. If the Greens hold the balance of power after the next election, what changes will you try to negotiate on the NDIS? That's a really great question, George. There's a there's a couple of uh, key things that, that we have heard uh, from the community over the last uh, four years particularly that we uh, will really be, be pushing for. Uh, first uh, will be a uh, lifting of the staffing cap that is currently uh, placed on the agency, um, which prevents it from hiring uh, above a certain level of staff. We want that uh, cap completely removed um, so that the agency is able to hire the 10,000 people uh, that we have known since 2009 will be needed um, to ensure that the agency can meet the basic needs of the community. Um, Now, what that means is you'll be able to ring up and speak to somebody directly um, you'll be able to speak to the same person uh, multiple times, build a relationship, build trust with that person. Um, and at the same time, we're going to ensure that uh, those uh, staff members are trained properly so that they actually get it when you speak to them. They have an expert knowledge of, of their subject matter and have also been able to build a relationship with you. Um, we then want to see a total transformation of the IT system um, so that the NDIS has now what it you know always should have had, which is a bespoke system um, that actually allows the complexity of our lives as disabled people to be recorded, reflected and stored in the system. So no more of this kind of uh, kind of um, permanent or uh, primary or secondary disability that the system currently forces you to record. Um, so get rid of that system as it currently exists, implement a new one that's able to reflect us properly. Um, we want to see at least 50% uh, disabled people um, on the board of the NDIA so that uh, the decision makers and the decisions that are being made about our plans, about the future of the scheme are being shaped by disabled people what about 51 percent 51 Jordan well uh, the majority well, yeah. well I, I think that there is a uh, I think that there is a strong case for 50 percent of the board and then potentially a disabled chair of the board so you would end up with a kind of 51 uh, percent majority um, but I, I think that we need to have that lived ex- experience in there and have that lived experience defined as is a disabled person, not 
you know, what we currently have at the moment, which is, oh, yeah, I've got lived experience because my brother's auntie's uncle's dog was disabled or, you know, I'm the parent of a disabled person, which is a lived experience, but it is not the lived experience of a disabled person. Um, and then, of course, building on all of that, what we want to see is an end to the cuts um, that people have experienced in their plans and a return of the funding that they need, um, as well as a a total shift in the way that uh, the agency's culture operates from one which is currently focused on gatekeeping resources um, to one that is about flagging unmet need and actually finding ways to get more disabled people into the NDIS um, as part of a process of bringing down those current barriers like the age barrier um, that currently exists that cuts you off supports at 65. So we want to see that go um, so that if you are somebody that, you know, acquires a, a catastrophic injury at 66, you're still able to get the support um, that you would have been able to get if you were 64. Yes, thank you. Are you concerned, Senator, about sustainability of the scheme? We know there's a lot of talk um, about sustainability. Do you have concerns? And do you see any areas where we need to look for savings? Well, I think what concerns me most at the moment, George, is that we've had 10 years as a community having come together to found the NDIS, to force it into being, you know, um, where it has too often felt like we've had to fight the very scheme that we set up to struggle against and with the people that run that scheme to get the basic supports that we need to live a good life. Um, and I think you see that in... The, the awful decline in people's funding packages, um, particularly if you've got certain types of disability at the moment. I think when we talk about the NDIS, we've got to centre disabled people in that con conversation and focus on the actual outcomes uh, for disabled people. Um, what, are, what are the supports we're getting? How does that align with us meeting our goals? How does that contribute towards bringing an end to ableism in society? When we talk about the role that finances play in that, um, that money plays in that, um, it is, of course, an important conversation to engage with, but it needs to be one that's engaged with in a context of, like, we're not actually doing this because of uh, X, Y, Z, insert some uh, rationalist argument about money. We're, we have an NDIS in existence because of the moral obligation that we have and the legal human rights-based obligation that our collective society has to support us as disabled people to live our lives um, in the face of the ableism that we experience. Um, now, I've spent a long time hearing from the government a lot of worries about the financial sustainability of the scheme. Um, and my observations would be, firstly, um, that the Commonwealth uh, continues to have every le lever in its toolbox that it could ever, ever possibly need to fund the NDIS to whatever extent is necessary to get people 
those supports. Um, even the, the current amount of money that it is costing um, in terms of how much, uh, you know, is expended by the Commonwealth every year on it um, is minuscule next to the amount of money that the federal government has, say, handed over to rich people through their ta stage three tax cuts or that they invest in uh, massive defence projects. Um, so I think we've got to view that in context. And the last thing that I would say is uh, that there needs to be more research on the economic impact of the NDIS, uh, because we do have research now coming to us that uh, seems to suggest that for every dollar that is expended on the NDIS, uh, it actually generates about $2.50 of economic activity, um, meaning that in one financial year alone, 2021 uh, financial year, the NDIS contributed $56 billion to the economy, which is significantly more uh, than it cost the federal government. But that, George, is not the reason why the NDIS uh, should exist as a thing. Like that, that's a happy byproduct, but actually I think we need to stay connected with the reality that uh, this isn't a, a question of cost, this is a question of moral and legal obligations, um, and and that is should be the, the kind of uh, North Star of these conversations. Yes, and we should have funding, and not be able to find staff. So let's talk about workforce, which is a serious issue, especially in uh, rural and remote areas. Mm. What do you think we should do to address the, the workforce shortages, especially, you know, with unemployment being significantly, you know, lower than it was a few years ago? Uh, how are we going to find people to do the work? Uh, it's a really good point. And, and I think like when I was going through the budget papers from the last federal budget um, in relation to the NDIS, you really see this uh, disconnect, which is what we're, we're you, what you've you've highlighted here between um, the amount of money you might get funded in your plan. Um, that, and that shows up in the budget papers is like how much money has been committed versus how much money is actually being able to be spent by disabled people on the supports that we need. Um, and the differential between those two figures in the last budget paper was, was huge. It was like $17 million up to that point in time had been, billion dollars rather, had been committed um, in funding and only $12 billion had been spent. Um, and the reason why there's this disconnect is uh, exactly as you say, the workforce shortages are a massive uh, part of it. You might be funded for a certain amount of hours that you actually can't enough get enough people to provide or, um, you know, actually uh, being funded for services more broadly that maybe don't exist yet in your area. Um, and so I think to address the workforce element, um, and I know this might sound a bit wonky in some ways, but we really have got to look at the, the, the process of becoming a support worker holistically, right? And decide what kind of support workforce are we trying to build and what are the best ways to do it. Now, I would say the ideal disability workforce is one that is quite significantly made up of disabled people ourselves. Um, and if that's, you know, the conclusion, then we've got to be looking at finding ways of supporting more disabled people to be support workers for other disabled people too. Uh, getting that peer-to-peer -peer working 
happening um, is incredibly important in the same ways that we're developing that in the mental health um, space. Um, I think we also need to be looking at the uh, training and qualifications emphases em emphasis is emphases emphasis i don't know uh the focus um that we we kind of are, are putting on kids in the education system because to me there seems to be a really uh, difficult um and concerning a mismatch between the focus that we are telling kids in school like around kind of like stem subjects and uh those kind of priorities in uh, in school and in early tertiary education versus what are the actual needs of the workforce into the future, which are, you know, arts and human uh, interface related work um, and the caring workforce. So those are the spaces where we have real need for more people. Um, so I think what we've got to actually do is begin to reform the education system so that we have a, a focus on arts and the humanities all the way through um, in a really comprehensive way, building that uh, emotional, uh, uh, you know, uh, intelligence in people uh, that is so important to working in the caring industries. Um, and then ensuring that there are like high quality uh, pathways for them to study or become qualified if they want to uh, in those workforce areas. Um, learning from a curriculum that is co-designed by disabled people ourselves, not what some, you know, academic somewhere thinks you should know as a support worker. Um, and provide that as a kind of a career development pathway, if that's something that they want to do, um, while always being really sure, not like really careful not to create unnecessary barriers um, to playing certain support roles um, for for disabled people. There's a view that exists in some parts of, of government and policy worlds that, you know, the only kind of support worker that is ever acceptable is a formally qualified support worker. Um, and I think that that is a, a, a bit of a myth that's quite dangerous in some places to assume that just because somebody has a certain qualification, that means they have a certain capacity to deliver service. Because often uh, what I've found is the quality of, you know, Cert 1, Cert 2, insert whatever you like, TAFE qualification actually focuses uh, far too much on compliance and report writing rather than actually what is needed to effectively work with a person. Um, and there is Can also I add a, to that? Yes, Can I add course, to that, Jordan? Uh, I think that uh, the other thing that I hear, and also from my experience, is that it's the attitudes and values of the, the workers that are key, yeah. not necessarily you know, a piece of paper. And often these pieces of paper uh, are training delivered by, you know, people who aren't people with disabilities. And we want workers in the sector that listen to us and what we need that don't come into the sector with their feet planned views on, on how to support us. Yep, I, I totally agree. Um, and I, I think that, I think that one of the things that is um, that is important is that when we talk about uh, the values and mindsets that that we want to see, um, they are again the values and mindsets that we as disabled the yardsticks, if you like, that we as disabled people set, rather than what a service provider organisation might 
believe are the values and mindsets that you need to work with a disabled person because often i hear um sentences like oh yes we very much hire based on values and mindsets here at you know dibbly doop service provider but actually the values and mindsets they're looking for is do you really care for the person you'll be working for you know do do you get a lot of joy out of working with those less fortunate and and from my perspective like no it is not about any of those things it's about respect it's about understanding of human rights it's about uh you know understanding of boundaries and different communication styles um whether or not you love disabled people uh is neither here nor there because it's not a starlight foundation you know thing it's a job you know i agree with you let me add one to that do you listen to people with disabilities? Because mm. that's the number one thing that people say. They want workers that listen to them. Listen to them is really key. I'm, I'm going to move us on to uh, uh, an issue that I'm very um, concerned about, and that's uh, people with disabilities who are stuck in hospital uh, waiting for the NDIS plans. Yes. Uh, some are waiting for you know, many, many months. How long do you think it should take for the NDIS to make these decisions around housing and supports? Oh, I mean, I think there, there's a 90-day a window, I think, that it for decision-making that's set down in the new participant service guarantee that, that, that was passed through the parliament, if I remember rightly. But I think even that gets very long in the tooth for some of these critical housing decisions. Um, I, we've got a case here in WA at the moment of an a individual who... Um, uh, has a like a, a quite significant package um, uh, but for a number of different reasons um, the relationship with the service provider has fallen through they live in a rural and regional community so that's the only service provider near them um, the service provider has withdrawn service um, and this has landed the individual in the hospital in the in the rural hospital and they've been there for a month now um, so it's not just people being uh, you know, people. Some people have, you know, plans and backups and all these kind of things, and they all fail, and then they just end in the hospital bed as the provider of last resort, um, which is not at all what we envisaged in the system. So I think, really, the question is, how do we want the agency to respond to crisis situations? You know, um, to actually be able to properly uh, intake information triage cases respond quickly um and that again comes back to culture and staffing capacity to do that like i i always remember bruce uh, bonahady saying to me back when i first took on this job that the, the thing that so many people missed about the ndis the things that many politicians and bureaucrats didn't understand was that it was fundamentally a relationships-based scheme you know, like like the, the, the planner, the decision maker needs to be supported to develop an understanding of the individual, hear their needs, record that information, transfer it if necessary, uh, and build a relationship with the individual or, the, or their support people around them. What that enables you to do is respond quickly if there is a crisis, 
or ideally see the thing coming in the first place because it's very rare that one of these um, crisis situations comes out of the blue. You know, it's very rare that you're like, oh, everything's fine and I've got all the funding I need and my housing situation is awesome. And then a meteor falls out of the sky and now my house is destroyed and I need extra help. You know, like the, there's a bunch of different there's a bunch of different factors underlying causes that kind of then explode in a crisis and somebody ends up in a hospital bed. Um, and if you've got that relationship, if you know what the signs are to look for, um, then you can actually put those preventative measures in place that mean we don't we don't get there. Um, yeah, and and that goes back to what you said earlier about um, of having our staff in the agency that know the person yep. and that can support them in the journey. I want to turn now to uh, something that you advocated for, and that was the Royal Commission into disability abuse, neglect, violence, and exploitation, where a couple of years on, right, mm. what do you think we need to do to really seriously address this with action mm. and not just with words? Well, I think one of the things that will be absolutely critical, George, is ensuring that when the recommendations of the commission is, is handed down, um, that there are disabled people uh, in decision-making roles um, in relation to how the government responds to uh, the recommendations one way or another. And that's why um, you may have seen um, in, in the last couple of days, um, I've put a kind of call out that the next um, that the next Minister for Disabilities should be a disabled person um, and that we need to, to take that step in conjunction with more disabled people on the board and, a, and actually an institutionalised structure within the agency which builds co-design, actual authentic co-design into everything it does. Now, that's partly to do with the NDIS, but it's also partly to do with uh, when these recommendations come out, uh, th there'll be one of two things, right? They'll either be the trans recommending the transformational change that is needed, in which case uh, it's really critical that government quickly you know, begin the process of actioning those recommendations so that we don't see uh, the, a massive lost opportunity like we've seen in the past with some royal commissions where government has just left it to go dusty on the shelf. Um, or uh, some of the recommendations may be actually uh, counter to a human rights-based agenda to disabled people. It is possible, given that the commission is made up overwhelmingly of non-disabled people, um, that the conclusions the commission draws um, are wrong. You know, that they come out and yeah. say things like, um, uh, oh, people are really struggling on the NDIS and the, the uncertainty of the planning cycle is causing an extraordinary amount of anxiety. Uh, therefore, uh, we need a return to uh, stable stable funding, block funding, if you oh, will. Yeah. You know, and it, that, that would be, if the commission was, say, was to say, we've got to go back to block funding, segregated education is fine, um, and there's no way to get rid of ADEs because there's always going to be a bunch of people that need to work in uh, these kind of settings. Well, can I add to that? I'm concerned yes. that they're going to advocate for mandatory qualifications. Mandatory qualifications. You know, for everyone, when yep. that is not. You know, the one size 
fits all approach is not what we're advocating for the NDIS. Absolutely. Again, if that's what they come down as recommendations, we need disabled people in those decision-making roles to push back on that um, and push back on those recommendations because this is the critical thing I think is so important to remember about why we campaigned for a Royal Commission uh, to look into these issues. We campaigned for it um, because we understood as a community that there was a need for a judicial inquiry of the highest nature to be able to uh, extract the evidence and hold to account the individuals that were currently able to hide behind systems and processes um, and avoid responsibility for violence abuse for their role in violence abuse exploitation and neglect or the complicity or contribution of certain policies to those phenomena right um, what we didn't we, we did not pull it together to kind of spend three years going, inclusive education, is it possible? You know, or like, or, you know, uh, independent housing, can it really be done? We know, we know the answer to those, the, we know the answer to those questions. Um, we, that was not what, well, to put it more simply, we employed the Royal Commission, we campaigned for the Royal Commission to investigate and hold to account those violating our human rights as disabled people. Uh, we did not, uh, you know, employ them and campaign for their existence to weigh our human rights up against the practicalities of their implementation um and, and if it is the case that those are the kinds of recommendations that uh, are made then we as a community are going to have to uh you know band together and push back and call out the inherent ableism that will sit so ironically at the heart of some of those assumptions in those recommendations absolutely let's talk now let's turn now to appeals and the fact that there was a 324% increase yes. um, in the number of ads and appeals last year. I'm, I'm in two minds about this. I, I think it's good that people are challenging decisions because ultimately we, we want people to be empowered to go to the IIT. So I'm also really concerned that there are that many unhappy people out there mm. that feel the need. So what, what do you think needs to be done to address this really uh, exponential growth in, in ART appeals? I think that you're absolutely right to say that it is good that people are utilising the system, right? Um, and if, if we were seeing a bunch of, you know, an increase in people utilising the system um, and this, you know, carrying through to not only a 300 or a 400%, I think it was, um, increase in the number of people applying to go to the, the AAT. If that was matched with a 400% um, increase in people, you know, going through the full tribunal process and getting an outcome, then that would be the system functioning as it's meant to, right? It would be a warning sign that... that uh, depending on which way those cases resolved themselves in the tribunal, there'd be a warning sign that there was maybe some problems going on in decision-making. Um, but in fact, what we are seeing is a significant discrepancy uh, between uh, applications lodged and the number of cases that actually go 
through the full hearing process. Um, we, the vast majority of these applications for hearings at the tribunal are resolved by the agency out of out of the tribunal uh, process. So what that tells me is that rather than you know more people utilising their right to appeal, what's happening is the agency is making bad decisions, forcing people to go to the AAT or betting that they won't because of the bureaucratic nature of the process and the stress involved in it. Um, and then if people do, uh, settling with them before then going to a going through a further part of the tribunal process. So they're effectively utilising the tribunal's, diff like the difficulty of engaging with the tribunal um, to, to put a blocker on disabled people getting the supports they need because they're making a bet that if they make a bad decision that is unjustifiable, that we as disabled people will be too tired, too stressed, too anxious um, to, to actually follow through um, and assert our rights through the system. What do we need to do? So what, what's the, are you saying that solution is get the, get the decision right to start with? Is that effectively what oh, you're saying? I mean, I think the, the whole structure of the, the Australian appeal, the Administrative Appeals Tribunal needs to change, right? Because we have a system at the moment where that relies upon the individuals who are members of the tribunal being qualified to do that job. Right, and at the moment they're not qualified to do that job. They are often political hack appointees who are mates of whichever side of government uh, was in power at the time the appointments came up, um, and they're often like former state MPs and people with no judicial or administrative backgrounds at all. So I think we need to change the whole way the tribunal functions and probably resource it better so that it can process the backlog that it has. Um, but ultimately, yes, you're absolutely right. We need to be making the right decision the first time um, and not fighting disabled people when we say, hey, this is actually the support that we need. Like, I need a psychological support dog um, to be able to meet the goals in my plan. This is the type of wheelchair that I need to be able to meet the goals that I've set in my plan. These are the number of support hours um, yeah. or number of times that I need to be able to see my particularly qualified psychologist in order to meet my goals. Um, and, and the answer from the agency, unless there is a very good reason, should be absolutely go for your life, you know? I want to turn to an issue that I, you know, we all know is at the core and at the foundation of the NDIS, and that is uh, choice and control. And, you know, a lot of us are lucky enough that we, we exercise that quite, quite deliberately and quite confidently. But not everyone's in that position. What action do you think is needed to build capacity so that more of us, hopefully all of us, can exercise choice and control? I think there's a couple of things we need to do. Uh, one is we need to fund uh, individual advocacy at the state and federal level uh, far higher than we do um, so that people can access advocate services and have the support they need to navigate these often complex systems. Um, and it's really 
uh, one of the things that frustrates me most is that since the NDIS has come in, state governments particularly have slashed support to state-based advocacy services right at the moment when they were needed more than ever to help people engage with this new system. So we have to fund those properly. Um, and we also have to ensure that we are funding both individual and systemic advocacy um, at the state and federal level. Um, and then I think what is also needed uh, is uh, more uh, cultural investment um, in the disability community. And what do I mean by cultural uh, investment? Um, what I mean is there needs to be those bedrock cultural institutions for our community that exist for many other communities, like dedicated ABC funding to disability content and platforms like the previously existing ramp up um, that used to exist way back when. Um, there needs to be funding from the Commonwealth to develop peer-to-peer -peer based support um, and an advocacy capacity and community um, and a lot of this you know is existent at the moment but running on the smell of an oily rag or literally volunteer time um, so that actually needs to be to be funded and recognized as providing the value that it does um, and then finally I think what we need to be doing is ensuring that uh, <clears throat> the, the uh, systems that people are asked to engage with um, are simple like a simple and easy to access. We need to be going through the NDIS application processes, the appeals processes, the IT interfaces, and ensuring that those really good design and com uh, communication principles around easy English and easy read and, you know, actually making it, uh, getting the bureaucratic speak out of it. Um, and supporting, uh, creating a system that supports people to, to find information as well as supports them to engage in things like pre-planning um, effectively so that you can actually have the time to think about what you want in your plan before you get to the meeting. And I'd also add to that that we need more support for people to self-manage their funding. Oh, absolutely. So Control that way. Absolutely, it's our money. We should be able to. We should be able to increase the number of people using it ourselves. You know. I'm gonna hand over to you to make a final pitch, I guess, to everyone listening out there as to uh, why you think that they should uh, vote for 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 you. Ultimately, that's that's uh, that's why you're here, isn't it, Jordan? <laughs> well, absolutely, George, and, and thank you so much for the opportunity. Um, as, I, as I kind of look back on the last 10 years of our disability community and our experience of disabled people in Australia, what sticks out to me is the multiple times that we have had to struggle against this Liberal government, uh, the decisions that it has made. Uh, and the decisions that it has failed to make, whether it's cutting our plans or trying to force us to undergo an independent assessment process that was diabolical, um, that would have forced us to, to, to disclose our most, you know, private aspects of our lives to to people we'd never met, didn't know anything about us because the government thought that we were trying to rot the system, um, whether it's the pandemic and the way in which we were left behind and excluded and deprioritized to the point where even now, uh, if I, George, got COVID-19 
um, and pop me clogs, I would not be counted under any Australian government system as a disabled person that had died, because the only data they collect uh, is disabled people who have died who were also NDIS participants. Um, or whether it's the, the, the floods, the terrible floods and natural disasters that we've experienced over the last 10 years, where we have consistently been forgotten isolated, left behind, unable to access the supports that we need. The common thread through all of that has been disabled people asking for the supports that we need, demanding the systems uh, fixes that we uh, experience firsthand and therefore no, you know, need fixing in certain ways. And those calls being either ignored, distorted, dismissed by decision makers who are not disabled and therefore do not get it. And I think as we as a community look to what do we want the next 10 years to be, whether it's fixing the NDIS or education or employment or housing or making infrastructure more accessible or implementing the good recommendations of the Royal Commission, what we need is more disabled people in those positions of power uh, to get that work done. And ultimately, by voting Green um, on election day, uh, you're putting your vote and support for the only Australian political party uh, that endorses disability pride, the only party with a comprehensive uh, policy agenda that touches all parts of our experience as disabled people, um, and the only party that wants to see the next minister for uh, disabilities be a disabled person. Um, and for all of those reasons, I really hope um, that people uh, consider voting Green um, on election day. And if I were in the Greens and up in a coalition, would you be our next disability minister, Jordan? Well, wouldn't that be a wonderful outcome, George? I, I, you know, that would be something that we would have to negotiate. Um, but I, I will say that in the ACT, the Greens and uh, the Labour Party are in a coalition government and the ACT uh, disability minister is a Green. Um, and she is one of the key reasons, Emma Davidson, that, that um, independent assessments did not become a thing because sitting around that disability reform council table when the minister was trying to ram it through um, there was somebody willing to say no and listen to uh, the disability community when we made uh, the demand that we would not be subjected to these assessments so I think we've already seen uh, the, the, the benefit that Greens in these spaces can bring and if I was to do that job mate I would uh, very much focus on uh, continuing the direct relationship and the direct connection that we've built together between the Greens and the disability community um, and ensuring that co-design um, and, and the authentic disabled voice is always at the centre um, of decision-making that affects us as people. Thank you, Jordan, and best of luck on the 21st of May. Thank you so much. That's all we have time for on today's episode of Reasonable and Necessary. Remember that this is just one of a series of episodes for the federal election. So make sure you check them all out, including our final analysis episode, which is a ripper. To be notified of future episodes, don't forget to hit 
the subscribe button and the notification bell. You can also follow me on Twitter at Dr. George the Crip. Thanks for listening, and until next time, stay well and reasonable.